Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. He grew up in the tennis hotbed of Atlanta, Georgia, and after an excellent junior career, attended the University of Virginia, and to this day, is the best player to ever play at the school. He got to 57 in the world, reached the quarters of the 2003 Indian Wells Masters, and posted wins over Michael Chang, Fernando Gonzalez, and Juan Carlos Ferrero, to name a few. He is now a successful businessman and sits on the board of directors of the USTA. Brian Vahaley is going to regale us with one of the most inspiring stories of perseverance we have heard to date. He'll explain the virtue of college tennis. And tell us the downside of being named one of People Magazine's most eligible bachelors. We met up with Brian last September as the U.S. Open was coming to a close. This episode is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. So listen, first and foremost, we're in the majestic lounge at the second floor off the lobby of the Grand Hyatt on 42nd Street at between Park and Lex. And this is, for the longest time, as I can recall, you know, one of the real go-to player hotels for the U.S. Open. I mean, I think I've been here since 95, maybe, 94, 95, in this exact hotel. So it's like the anxiety you feel walking into the lobby and seeing it, it's still... Wait, it's still very real. Five to two thousand five <laughs> is ten. Two thousand five yeah. to two thousand fifteen yeah. is He's twenty. Gone. Yeah. So you've been coming to this hotel for twenty four <laughs> years. It's just the, the the nightmares, the pain, the agony. Uh, yeah. Gentlemen, you hear is Brian Vahaley, former world number fifty eight. Okay. Is that right? Sounds good. And um, the the greatest player to ever play at Virginia. The greatest record, the greatest career, right? Yeah, sounds about right. Samdev, another guy came behind me, an Indian guy. Samdev Devarman. He was like, we were ranked always right about the same. But but 25 years of U.S. Opens is unbelievable. It, well, and it's been a lot of, it was, goes anywhere from the juniors to the qualifying years to the professional years to, um, you know, now you're serving as the board of directors of the USDA. So it's just been a interesting progression we do a five-set format we um our first set is the off the court report yeah um i guess you got to tell us what you you're a finance <laughs> investment i don't know person, uh, but also you're here for tennis business yeah i mean so when i went to university of virginia i majored in finance business management i always knew i was going to go back there after my pro tennis days um, I've been in the venture capital world, a little bit of private equity, um, and uh, now work for a company named SolidCore in the DC area. Um, so you basically traded in the pain and suffering, the pain and suffering of pro tennis for like you just made a fortune. It, I, I don't know if I'd take it that far, but it's uh, yeah, it's been great. It's sort of the different. It's been a different side of my brain and trying to put tennis a little bit behind me. Leaving tennis is very difficult, um, so this was sort of the next path came on the board of directors from a guy, Paul Goldstein. Um, he actually encouraged me to come back and join the board, so it's been fun to see you know, this side of tennis. So you're a, you're a member of the USTA board of directors. Correct. So we're making decisions, like we made, I sat in there for the vote for the roof um, on Arthur Ashe, for the decision around the strategic transformation on like Louis Armstrong, uh, Lake Nona and the national campus. I mean, it's pretty... It is actually pretty interesting stuff. I really enjoy it. Now, you know our show is an insider show, so I have to ask you, <laughs> our sources are telling us that Todd Martin is going to be the next tournament director of the U.S. Open. Can you uh, either confirm, deny, or, or uh, tell us something about that? I actually don't know, right? So we're making decisions right now on the uh, CEO of the organization. Gordon just resigned. Gordon's been... He was Gordon. Sh- Gordon Smith. Gordon Smith. Uh, he served on the board of directors, was a volunteer for many years, was a lawyer, um, came on, ran the USTA from, I think, 2008 to 19, uh, came to us last year saying he was ready to go, it was time to resign. So we've been running a process right now trying to figure out who he's going to be his replacement. But there's real... I mean, it is massively confidential... I actually don't have any information in terms of who's a candidate right now. 
That's the honest truth. So I know you don't believe me. I know you're shaking your head. No, 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 no. That's not true. A, dis- I, I, a decision's going to be made. I'm just proud of myself for even shaking you up a little bit. I know. It's our decision. <laughs> We're going to make the decision in a couple months, but they've stayed pretty quiet about what's happening. Who are the other candidates? I don't know one of them. <laughs> I, I do not know one. Um, so what are some other things that this board does? Um, you guys are always, I, I see everyone, because I look over to the president's box, <laughs> and I see you all have the nice jackets on. So jackets are mandatory. We got to look the part. Jackets mandatory, jackets in, the, mandatory. in the president's box. Correct, which is a little tough. Last year, I don't know if you remember how hot it was at the Open. We were sweating through a lot of it. But you get a bunch of guests, which is really fun, right? So you can take, still bring your friends here, see what that's like. Um, there's a lot of sponsors that are there, international dignitaries that come through, celebrities that are in there. So, it's, I mean, it, it's fun. It's an interesting way to watch tennis, especially when you've got an open bar, uh, great food upstairs. It's, it's pretty neat. I mean, that's it. And, <laughs> that's um, the life. You, you live in D.C. Live in D.C. Mm-hmm. Doing, I'm doing finance, working for a company, Solid Core. Our goal is to get that sold within the next two years. It's in the boutique fitness space. Um, so trying to get that from when I started 15 locations to 150 locations. Hold on. So what is that? It's like um, really intense Pilates. It's almost like Pilates on steroids. It's kind of in that soul cycle vein. You know, loud music, um, great workout, really hard workout. You do um, it? I do it, yeah. I do it four times a week. And so, what's it called again? Uh, solid core. Solid core. You One word. One solid word. core. You got it. Um, and, where so are, and where are those? Uh, we're in, yeah, we're in D.C., Florida, Texas, New York, Connecticut, Michigan. How, how, do, you, how do you find that? So I uh, met the CEO many years ago back in my venture capital days and always was very impressed with her. She's super sharp. And uh, as soon as she was getting ready to scale the business, I said I wanted a, I wanted a shot. So you want in? I want in. So that's what VC does. They they help nurture. You try and find those like early stage entrepreneurs. Where's the opportunity? Where's the um, where's and typically we're on the investing side, right? You just give them capital and let them run and let them run. But I wanted to be a part of this one. So you're into it. And so you're gonna try, and you're going to try to sell it soon. We the goal is to sell it probably about a year and a half. So we are on the path. Uh, we're going to open another five next month, six the month after. So oh, good luck with that, man. Yeah, that's cool. fun. Let's move into our on the court report. First and foremost, do you watch a lot of tennis? Sometimes. The hardest thing about it right now is there are still people out there that I competed against. And when I played and had my shoulder problems in like 2008, the vast consensus was you're 28, it's time to go. So there was never even a thought of coming back because there's just no one had done it before. So to continually watch people you competed against still be out there and playing, it is, it is frustrating. I mean, you played Feliciano Lopez. I mean, you played all these guys, right? I mean, you started at a young age, you're playing ITF tournaments at 14, you know, and you're seeing Federer in the juniors, Nadal in the juniors, the, all the American guys, Isner, Query. Um, I didn't play sock. Um, you know, so you've got that group, you've got, you know, Robredo lasts a long time, you know, Fernando Gonzalez, they just, everybody extended their career so long. And it's, you know, James Blake, I grew up with since I was 10 years old and just continue to watch him be successful. And, it, and I'm not, I don't have any thoughts that I was going to be as great as they were, but could I have potentially extended the career to play another five, six years um, with more, you know, a different mindset would have been great. But you had a bad shoulder. We're going to get into it when yeah. we talk about your career. But so what have your impressions been? I suppose we can start with the men the, of pro tennis. I mean, listen, it's the same guys, right? It's Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal that you feel like it's always on their racket. So it's fun to watch that. I personally, Medvedev is, is somebody that I find to be really interesting and fun to watch. I love his personality that he's he got brings. a quirky. Uh... He's super odd. He's like, he's abrasive at times, which I think the sport actually needs. I miss those days of the enemy and the tough, uh, you know, the guy who's willing to play the villain openly. Well, he I, certainly... Um, I mean, I'm into it. I like it. He certainly pulled the WWF routine uh, these past couple of weeks. I mean, I think, but I think it's great. You know, they got the fans talking about it. You get somebody to sort of root against um, or... Yeah. I don't know. I think uh, I think tennis needs that sometimes. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, he's got a quirky. Uh, he's got a quirky style, huh? I mean, his backhand is a funny looking stroke. It's an odd looking shot. Um, I mean, he's. You know, I watch him in DC too, right? He played the City Open, did really well there. Um, it's. He's got such a big serve. He can sort of get away with it, but it I, seems to me that like a lot of. A lot of players in 2019 have kind of like this funky 
backhand that they <laughs> sort of knuckleball it. It almost doesn't spin. Kyrgios does it. It's almost like a shovel a little bit, it's right? It's a shovel. Yeah. And Kyrgios does it. Medvedev has it. Um, I mean, listen, you can get away with it. The sort of, but they can laser beam it yeah. almost like dead flat, and they almost never miss. Yeah. Do you know? Can you tell me anything about that? I mean, I I don't. I there's been enough players that get by with a backhand that sort of keeps the ball on the court. Maybe can be dangerous every now and again, but for the most part, a serve and forehand is how the game's played. So I mean, so I you have to be able to open up on your forehand. Yeah, a little bit, and so it's just a matter of keeping the point going. You know, hitting it cross court. Um, you know, keeping it deep, but sort of like a slap shot the way he plays. Um, yeah. Are there any other players that you guys talk about when you're sitting around? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not surprised. Again, Medvedev making it there. I, I I think everybody's hoping Stan comes back and continues. It was great to see him play the other night against Djokovic. He looked great. Um, but there hasn't, you know, a lot of the new, some of the new blood, I think it's, I, people are getting in, stronger in the game a little bit later, and that's just so new to me. But, and then also, then there's like, you know, this kid, I, I, I don't know if you saw him, uh, this red-headed Italian from like the way north in Italy, Yannick Sinner. Have you seen him play? I have not seen him play. Oh, man. <laughs> Guy is, the, the ball sounds like a shotgun blast off his racket. I never heard anything like it. I mean, I believe it. I, I actually love watching those outside courts. And it's one of the things, like, you know, you're in the suite, so you oftentimes you're staying on Ash, you're seeing Nadal and Djokovic play sort of consistently. But yeah. what I miss are those great matches. And by know, the way, that's a days. drag. That's a drag that um, the Ash day has gone down to two matches. Yeah. And... Generally speaking, the tennis is uncompetitive uh, that first week. I wish there'd be a little bit, you know, like they'd put a good match on those courts. I mean, I know, but the hard part is you get so many people coming out to see those top players. This is their one chance to do it. They care less about these great matches. They just want access to these stars that are out there. Then you've got, if you've got multiple matches on the on Ash, I don't know if you remember a couple years ago when it was raining, but you know the match went five sets. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's go, it doesn't finish till seven thirty eight at night. All these people with ash tickets, I mean, are just getting I know, soaked I just, outside. I just love the, just, I, I just love the chaos. Though, I, you know, the suffering. It, yeah, the, the suffering was real. <laughs> the suffering and the chaos is real. Yeah. Well, everyone that has been bitching about uh, the two the two matches, now you know the situation. <laughs> um, I wish we had an Nadal Federer final, but some year, someday, they will play in New York. Someday. Well, that's interesting. A part of me thinks that the uh, Roger um, farewell tour is uh, is approaching. Is about to begin. I think so. Yeah, I uh, I'm very curious to see. I just saw an article yesterday about you know sort of what's going to happen to tennis when these big three or four stars are yeah. gone and the implications. But I I hate to think about it or even see. I, what, I love, was the, I love what, what was the um, what was the verdict? Listen, didn't look good, right? I mean, if you look at the ratings or tournaments where those guys are not playing, where Serena's not playing, the, the financials don't look great. Oh, is that right? So at some point, how is that going to translate its way up into the U.S. Open? What does that mean? What does sure. that mean for the, the, for the future of the game? Um, well, that's interesting. But, it's, but, but follow the math and follow the fans and stands a little bit there. And uh, it's something I think we got to keep an eye on. And so that's why I get encouraged to see the next crop of Brian Haley crunching numbers <laughs> while he's reading the papers because that's your background. Yeah. What do you think about ladies tennis right now? I mean, you know, I love watching Serena play. I think there's just... Uh, you know her well? I don't. I knew her agent, Jill, pretty well when I was competing, so, um, but I never really got to know her well, um, so I can't speak to that. But, um, you know, I obviously would love to see her break Margaret Court's record, so... Um, I continue to root for her. It's it was fun to watch uh, Andrescu and um, Benchitz play. They sort of feel like the future a little bit. So I think the quality of that part is going up. The depth is going up, but I haven't really dove into the personalities of it to like find some people I'm rooting for. Um, are you in touch with anyone that still plays pro tennis? And uh, are you in touch with any women on the in women's tennis that? You you know that they're like oh Brian you watch my match listen <laughs> no. to the box no, no none of that honestly when I finish you, you know don't fly the, out to the no, Czech Republic no, to no, see your friend no, no none of that no I mean when I stopped playing I shut it down I mean I really was it, it, you shut it down I had to shut it down I had to put the rackets away I had to look somewhere else and I needed to 
uh, I needed some time to see what it was like to live in the real world. Do you have any interesting opinions about, um, you know, the Serena fiascos um, that have happened? Um, do you, do you, um, do you think she's been treated unfairly? I think there's plenty of times when she's been treated unfairly. Um, so I, you know, I was there live last year for the finals. Um, I thought that was rough. Uh, I was really frustrated being there, watching what happened. Um, I understand the role that she played in it, but I also think there was a role the ref played in it, and I think um, that was. Brad Gilbert on our show described, or he 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 chimed that I don't want to even sit down on this subject that long. I yeah. feel like it's ancient history, but. Brad Gilbert thought that the chair umpire was passive aggressive and you know a bit unclear in his sort of treatment I guess or his you know his his rule stickler yeah I mean listen I thought the coaching penalty was a joke um, especially out there playing I mean the amount of times every single player after every point looks to their box and there's always communication that's happening there so why all of a sudden this was an appropriate time to hit Serena with it was was laughable to me. Well, you and then how right. it escalates, it's, you know, come on. You don't referee a game seven of the NBA Finals the same way you referee a game three. It's just... That's just not how that you, works. Do you want to insert yourself at the biggest moment on the biggest stage? I think I... I that was a little too much. That was too much. That was a little too much. Yeah. Let's move on to our third set. This is the part of our show where we talk about your career. Now... You grew up in Atlanta, do I have that right? I did. I was born in New Jersey, but moved down to Atlanta when I was, you know, five years old. And you started playing tennis like like when you were like over like a toddler? Started playing when I was two. I got the videos. Um, I I mean listen, I got young kids now. So I think at some point I whatever keeps them quiet, whatever keeps them happy. Uh, and I had a you know, I love to play tennis. I was scared to get in the water so I wouldn't get in the pool. And, you know, my parents just had me playing from a young age. Afraid to swim. Afraid to swim. Saw Jaws. At three and a half or four, apparently. And that just took... It crushed took, me. It took swimming it off It crushed me for years. It crushed me for a long time. I think I even still have that dream, maybe once every six, nine months. Uh, but I wouldn't get in the swimming pool until I was probably like nine or ten. Now, um, like how good how good were you? Um, I, mean, I mean, were you like walking around with like 13 rackets oh, and gosh. all I, that kind of I stuff? Was pre- I, could, I didn't miss often. Right, so I had a lot of the people around in the local parks, sort of watching me play. I was this four or five year old. I was winning, you know, ten and under tournaments. Okay, so and you were playing up so, and I mean, beating yeah, everybody. Sure. So I was beating a lot of kids older than me. Um, I knew that I was good at it, and the more that I understood that as a kid, the more I wanted to play because that gave me attention, that gave me some validation from family, friends, everything. So my, you know, your your passion from it comes from everybody telling you how how great you are. <laughs> Who did you kind of um, come up with that's interesting? Yeah, so Ashley, she was out, you know, probably outside of Atlanta where I, um, where I grew up, but certainly knew of her. Uh, Robbie Ginepri was a guy that I trained with at a young age. A uh, guy, Bobby Reynolds, uh, who also had a really successful career. Um, uh, you know, the other side of town was Donald Young. Um, you know all these people yeah. well. And that's the thing, you, you never really knew, as we were all growing together, it just became normal that you were moving your way up to state rankings, sectional rankings, national rankings, international, because that's what everybody else in that town was doing. Yeah. And now as you look back, you sort of wonder, how the heck were so many great players in such a small area that pushed us all to be, I think, way more successful than we probably should have been. And that's the, um, and, and, it, and Atlanta, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners in Atlanta, but in Atlanta, that is a hotbed of USTA doubles leagues, right? Alta is a big thing Alta, down there. Alta, that's what the thing yeah. is. I mean, I played that as a young kid, so I was doing that with other teams. I mean, it was... Tennis is almost the biggest thing there is. Yeah. There's what's courts the, everywhere. What's the name of that spot? Uh, where North Fulton, South Fulton. What do you, uh, There's a spot in like outside of Atlanta that's like a big hotbed. Stone Mountain or... I mean, come on, there's everywhere. There are courts at every subdivision. There are court. I mean, it's just there's so many free opportunities to play, and that's where at some point it becomes a family thing too. I mean, I got into it as well. My parents loved to play, so they would have you know their groups of friends having drinks down at the local club. I would just sort of sit there and watch. Um, Tennis in Atlanta is huge. a big thing. Yeah, 
It's huge. And, you, it was and you're all products of that. Yes. Amazing. Yeah, now, it was part of the family for sure. And now, so you never, um, your parents didn't send you to Bola Terry. Your parents didn't, you didn't go out to like, uh, you know, the, into Spain or to the Ricardo <laughs> PT, no, I Piatti mean, uh, academies. Li- yeah, listen, I went to a lot of, you know, I, I succeeded at an early age. But the folks at National, at the time the USDA, would watch me play and be like, listen, you're not that good. I don't know how to tell you any other way, but you're remarkably sort of average in all of these different key spots. And who would that be, like Patrick McEnroe? Uh, or, uh, Patrick was later. A uh, guy was like, guys like Nick Saviano. And, um, told you you weren't that good. You're like, listen, they're not saying it that directly, but right. it's sort of like when they're supporting everybody else to go to these tournaments and like, Brian, you just go work on your forehand. Go, like your, your serve is terrible. Who, so who were they traveling and were they, so it must've been like Andy Roddick. Oh, uh, not, you know, Roddick didn't even get, he didn't become great until later. He was sort of like run of the mill until 16, 17. Um, you know, those were days with a guy, Rodolfo Reiki, who was really, he was great. Rodolfo um, Reiki. Um, uh, gosh, there was a LeVar Harper Griffith. There was a... Um, Dang, so you kind Lawrence of... Lawrence Gunn. I mean, just all these guys that like, I mean, were, first of all, 10 times better athletes than I was. So I saw that and I was like, you're right. I don't have this athletic skill that they do. Um, I seem to be able to beat them, but... You know, maybe for all I know, as a kid from Georgia, you're probably right. At some point, my time will come. So my mentality with tennis then shifted to how do I leverage this into a great college that I could get into, that I wouldn't normally academically be able to get into. So were there converse? So first of all, you had a, you had a, 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 you had an excellent junior career. I mean, you won a ton of tennis. But it was always at each level was going to be the last one, right? You know, you're top 10 in the country in 14s. Like, you'll never make in the 16s. So, all right, then you get to the 16s, and you're number four, and, like, that'll never happen. Then, you know, I won the Easter Bowl, which at the time was Nationals, to get me to be number one. So won the Easter Bowl. I was number one. James Blake was two. You know, they, they go to the Australian Open to send the juniors. They sent numbers two, three, four, five, and six. That's amazing. <laughs> they literally man. left me off. And it's like, I mean, at some point, you know, what do I know? These are well-accomplished coaches telling you like, well, this is just not a guy worth investing in. Or the fact that I decided I was gonna go to college, which is very unusual, right? I was 17 in the world in juniors. You know, the top 50 guys are all going pro, except for me. Um, well, and probably James. James went to Harvard at the time. Um, you know, it's like, listen, if you go to college, you're a waste. You're, you're not worth our time. You know, th- there was always just a reason why it was going to stop. And, and there are moments as a player where you get crushed and you wonder if they're right. Right, so you walk into you know transitioning even to college or later days in juniors. You know you take a beating, and um, uh, you wonder if maybe this is as far as I'm going to make it. But hang on, so now you must see all these knuckleheads all around the the tennis courts and stuff. Do you t- have you been telling them for 20 years like how how bad they messed up? I mean, the, do, do you like do you like see him at the president's box and be like, oh yeah, so there's Nick. The, Nick screwed me when I was 14, yeah. 16, and 17. I mean, I don't I don't care that much. I think honestly, it drove me to be a better player. Is sort of the odd part, right? If you ever watch me play, I played with a chip on my shoulder. I felt disrespected in many ways, so I was an angry player at some point, and that you like to have an enemy. I love an enemy. I love somebody to compete against. And then that's like shifted even into my working world. I love somebody to focus my energy to defeat and that feeling of shaking their hand at the end of it. And so for me, at different times of my junior career, it was beating those chosen golden boys and being able to not only shake their hand, but shake hands of people who said I wasn't gonna make it. And I I loved it. Front of a Haley loves an enemy. (laughs) Now, what were you? What 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 um what made you go to Virginia and where else? What's the most interesting thing about that? So you know, at the time, you know, I was I was ranked, I believe, either one or two. Um, you know, I looked at Stanford, stayed with like the Bryan twins. One or two in the country. Yes. Not one or two, like <laughs> on your street. <laughs> So, so go on. Yeah, so, so I looked, I went to Stanford. I mean, at the time, you know, Paul Goldstein was there, which was, he was a huge role model to me. Um, I stayed with the Bryans at a trip out there. For our listeners, Paul Goldstein played pro tennis. He uh, was prolific. He played at Stanford. Correct. And um, had, a, had a prolific junior. Oh, one of the best junior college career. I mean, look at his statistics. They're amazing. It was a top 100 guy uh, for 10 years. Yeah. 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 No. I'm sorry. So yeah. So anyway, the you know I had opportunities to potentially go to Stanford and play there. I looked at Georgia, which was another local powerhouse. 
Um, I think this is where parts of my personality started to come out where I like the idea of going to build something and to be a part of something new that I can sort of lead and create uh, as opposed to just be another number in a long line of an amazing history. You go to Stanford, you might not necessarily, you might play four. I'd play six probably. Six. Yeah. You go to Virginia. Drop it in at number one. Year one, number one. Fact. <laughs> yeah. So. And the coach told you that. Yeah. I mean, it was, I started a little bit lower. He kept trying to push me up and I was like, listen, I'm not ready. You know, I just, I still had this concern that I was going to somehow look like a fraud. Right. And so wanting to, I don't like to take on a task unless I feel like I can be great at it. And what about Gimmelstab? Is he your age? <laughs> no. Well, he's a few years older. Uh, but Gimmel was, we played a ton out on the Pro Tour. Uh, but never, college, you didn't overlap in college. We might have overlapped one year. He played one year at UCLA. Um, and he was, he was good. And he, he was, was a, really, he was I mean, he was undefeated. He was player. amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I still was kind of figuring it out. I mean, I was still getting. He, but he, I, okay. So you you didn't really over, we you, never played. We overlapped in, in pro tennis. In pro tennis, we played a bunch. In college, we probably overlapped one year. You know, I was still ranked probably 50 or 60 in college. You, um, so let me ask, so you, so you must be a very strong believer in college tennis. I love college tennis. You love college tennis. I, I loved every minute of it. I think we don't publicize it well enough. I think it's one of the most fun experiences for a player to genuinely feel what it's like to have a teammate there for you, rooting for you. Those relationships are totally different. And frankly, I also think it can be a good stepping stone, which is why now as I'm sitting, you know, back on the board side, you know, you see, um, uh, you, you're seeing them promote college tennis. And back in the day, that never would have happened. Well, Tennis Channel finally kind of got off their... Um, Listen, they're getting involved as they should. Involved. And it is a great product. If you see College Tennis Live, it's incredible. But by the way, if for our listeners, if you have an opportunity to go see a, a, a mid to high level conference quality... You got to do it. High stakes college tennis match. It's it doesn't get more fun. It's incredibly fun. I it's mean, very cool because and it's really something that you can't you can't quantify it until you're on the ground, moving from court to court, looking at the scoreboards, counting the points, seeing the seeing the high energy. Of it. Yeah, the pressure of it, the momentum, the, pressure of it. the letting your teammates down, the winning for your team, that feeling of excitement at the end, the momentum swings that sort of happen. People I, that I think it's great. People that have had a good experience in college tennis, you know, I have a relationship with the Columbia University team, and they're like as tight of a group as there is. Man, the guys come back from twenty yeah. years to. To, to for the Ivy Leagues. Yeah. Is, I'm sure I mean, listen, I was, I was FaceTiming my, my doubles partner from college yesterday. You know, I was in the suite making fun of him while he's at home watching his kids. I was having drinks watching tennis. So those are very real relationships. I love it. Um, I would not trade those four years. All-American. Yep. Four years. Uh, three of the four. W number one in the country, national champion. Lost in the finals, Vincier's. A loss to the finals. I did lose in the finals. But Who beat you? Guy Matias Boker. Um, but I will Jeez, tell you, Boker. Pro, he played pro tennis. Of all matches I lost, um, it was probably one of my most fun because back in those days, um, it, the NCAA finals was at Georgia, and he had probably six, 7,000 fans there just screaming. And it, Georgia is a sick place. I mean, yeah, that's the really the, the hotbed. Oh, it was great. And it was such an amazing atmosphere. It actually, well, the unfortunate part was it took me out of my own game. And actually playing, because I was like, this is the greatest experience ever. Um, and I played Matias a couple weeks later and beat him. But I still, um, it just was, I, those types of moments are, you know, it's probably why everybody loves Davis Cup, right? So just have the fans going wild on your behalf. I mean, even though they were against me, I thought it was great. Which was amazing, by the way, because I was from Atlanta, playing at the University of Georgia in the NCAA Finals. And I'm just getting crushed by a guy from Argentina that everybody's rooting for. Score? <laughs> I don't know. It's like six two, six four. That's bad. Straight. That's bad. Um, when did you start? Um, you know, getting ATP points. When do you? 
when you know they do what did you do like yeah. like a lot of us we graduate college we get our diploma and then away you go you know what you go try to figure out something yeah did you get your diploma and be like well let me go or right. did you or you already started it was a confusing time so in the summer months you're playing uh, satellite tournaments back then so I was playing two or three weeks and I hated it I hated the how lonely I felt out there. I hated the match. I didn't feel good enough for the players. I just, you know, the entire experience was a nightmare for me. And I left early, right? I got my first AT point. You have to show up the last week to get it. And I called home. I was like, get me out of here. If there's one thing I've learned, I hate professional tennis. I never want to do this again. And like, let's focus on, you know, the finance part of me because I, I don't care what I'm ranked. I don't want to do this. You know, uh, I have a buddy whose um, son, you know, was the captain of Michigan hockey and he went to go play pro pro hockey and he stopped and he said man you know it's funny once money was involved once it became pro it, the fun came away from it very quickly it just was so drastically different from first of all you grow up you have your family there and and the juniors then you've got your teammates there in college then you're sort of out there by yourself you got people cheating in qualies it's it's a cutthroat desire cheating to get to the top and it's like i this isn't that fun for me. Um, and I felt like I had other opportunities in sort of the business world. So when I, you know, then it progresses to getting to the finals of NCAs and it's, you know, I had a bunch of friends at that time that thought you're going to regret not knowing. Just go out there, even if you get crushed, right? You've seen plenty of college players. And at the time, there were no college players in the top 100 in the world. So there's no reason to think you're going to be that guy. This is 2002? Uh, 2001. 2001. So no reason to think you're going to be that great. There's plenty of guys who beat you in college who got crushed out there. So listen, just go figure it out. Well, I felt a sense of guilt for asking my parents for money to go do that. So um, I put together a marketing plan to try and find basically investors to come in and support my tennis for a period of time. I would then in turn give a percentage of my prize money, but that would sort of take that pressure off my family because that was, to me, to ask them to do that felt irresponsible and, and something did I didn't want to do. You did a money raise. So I did a money raise. How much you raise? Um, uh, I probably raise. I think on average at the time it was around seventy-five grand a year. I think is where I started. Um, and to me, that was like this is all I need to cover my expenses, right? Get and ten guys to give you seventy-five hundred. Got one guy. Oh, sorry. So you right. did it. You pulled. You so got I got one. it. So um, away I went. And listen, the first tournament I lost one and zero. Oh, second tournament one and one. Show up to the U.S. Open qualies. I got a wild card in. Because, because of the NCAs, I show up, I lost 0-0 in maybe 35 to 40 minutes. I didn't get to 30 at any point. I mean, I lo it was 40 love, 40 love, 40-15, 40 love. Come on. And I mean, I just, it was so humiliating. And, um, Damn. you know, I just remember w walking off the court and just being like, this is so, this pain in front of doing this in front of all of my friends, in front of my family, in front of my college team, you know, it just was, I just thought to myself, this isn't the legacy I want to leave. Like, I have so proud of what I accomplished in the juniors and in college. Let's, I got to get out of this. And so that's when I started to talk with my best friend. I was like, we're moving to Australia. I got to get, I got to get away. I want out. We got to find where we're going to go. I'm going to teach tennis. I just, I'll come back and I'll do investment banking or consulting. Like, I turned away all those jobs when I graduated. Wait, you had a, so you had a complete freak out. I totally lost it. Like, get me out of here. So, um... And it, and it was about, it was at this time. And you're 22. 20, 21. 21. Yeah, 21, 22, somewhere there. And it was also at this time that September 11th had happened, right? So there was a lot, you know, when you're traveling and you're on tour, a lot of those tournaments were getting disrupted. You couldn't actually get there. there everyone, was the whole, was, everyone was terrified to go anywhere. A hundred percent. So um, for me, it was like I had a few more tournaments left in Jamaica. I was like, and it was one of my buddies that played at Georgia. I was like, let's just go down there and have a great, you know, great time. And, uh, you know, what the hell, let's go out with a bang, right? If we're gonna do this, let's go to Jamaica. I'll keep planning Australia and, you know. Let's go to Round Hill let's do it. and play this event. Who cares? We're, already, we're terrible, we're not good enough anyway. So let's go lose, but let's lose in Jamaica. And go drink 100 what Red Stripes. Hell? I don't care, I mean, I don't care, I'm done. And that, let's, yeah. let's sort of say goodbye to tennis. Then things changed. <laughs> Then I won both tournaments. Oh, come on. I won both tournaments. You won Jamaica. Won, won the first one, then it was the second one, I won that one. How much you make, like 30 grand twice? Uh, I mean, Less. listen, in those days, you know, you, you were making 1,500 bucks to win the tournament. It was more about the points those days. But, you know, you win a couple of tournaments and it's... You won, so you won Jamaica? Won then Jamaica. What? Then there was a the second one in Jamaica I won. 
Third one, I, I was getting a little hurt, so I pulled away from it. Did you beat anyone that's still uh, uh, current today? Oh, gosh. That hurts my brain. Um, no, probably not. Okay. Um, then moved into a, I was like, well, then let's go try a challenger. You know, I show up there. I'm playing a guy, Chris Woodruff. You know, who, of course, beat Agassi at the French. I mean, cr- incredible player. He um, played at Tennessee, I think. Correct. Um, you know, I was excited to sort of see how I was going to do there, beat him. Um, and it just was like, I couldn't figure out what I had tapped into. But somewhere along the line, the resigning in my mind that I wasn't good enough or resigning that my career was over allowed me to relax in a way that brought my level up five spots from where it was in college. And next thing I know, I was on a roll. Um, for months. Um, you got hot. I got hot. I was winning challengers. I was, I, you know, I got a chance to play Michael Chang in one of those who was my personal, like, role model. Beat him when I was out there. I just... Beat Michael Chang. I just, oh, it on. just kept going and going. And I was like, where? How is this happening? And I just... Um, Did you ever move to Australia? No. And my buddy was like, are we doing this or are we not? I'm like, I don't know. I... I, I I keep show. I would show up to these matches, and I would always, um, you know, my mom at the time was a travel agent. I'm like, listen, I'm gonna lose. Like, get me a flight out the same day, and then, you know, I'd win that match. And I was like, for sure, I'm losing tomorrow. Like, this guy's a hundred times better than me. And I had this weird uh, mentality that I started to build that I think alleviated pressure from me was really what I was doing. But it was just, I'm not good enough. This is probably not gonna happen. Like, this is it. This is today's the last day. Today's the last day. So, so from the time you declare you're going full plan B to move to Australia. (laughs) Where did your ranking go to where you were a main draw player in pro tennis? I mean, listen, I think that was in probably in early 2002. I'd have to check. I mean, I think I was playing in the Australian Open. I mean, it was like within a (laughs) six-month swing, I was just, uh, I was playing so, so well. Top 100? Yeah, top 100. You went from... It, It happens quick. And really, if you look at a lot of those great players or people that make in the top 100, um, it happens fast early on because if you get stuck in the futures for years, it is, it is really hard to get out. Marty Fish didn't tell us the same story, but he said that one day he just said, you know, I ain't doing this with this, these guys in challengers. And he started wiping everybody out. Yeah. He's like, I don't want to eat with them. I don't want to yeah. do the laundry. You know what I mean? Like he kind of... He, on our show, he said, you know, I, one day I just had this moment where I said, there's no way I'm going to be playing these, these rinky-dink tournaments anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he kind of flipped the script. And it sounds, like, it sounds like you did something a little bit Yeah, I mean, similar. It, similar, you know, I guess maybe similar mentality. But I, you know, I think Marty always knew he, I mean, he had something spectacular about him. He's sure. a natural athlete that, that made him, you know, be who he, what he was able to accomplish. Sure, sure. But, yeah, for me, it was just... I just found the way, I, I, I found it, and I just wanted to keep riding it as long as I could go. Um, yeah, I think it was that year. I think it was in 2002. I mean, I think I was playing Agassi on center court at the Australian. It was like, what? where am I? Like, how did I go from college and this is happening so quick? And yeah. it just, it, it, was, it was a confusing time. What's the most money you made? Um, well, you got to the quarters of, was it Indian Wells? Quarters of Indian Wells. And you beat Juan Carlos Ferrero there. Beat Ferrero, beat Roberto. He was one of the world, yeah. Yeah. It was a good, um, I mean, that was an interesting story, right? So, you know, you get to play these guys ranked number one, and you're like, I'm going to be on TV. So, I mean, I'm spending 20 minutes before a match calling everybody, being like, you got to watch this. Like, get out the VCR, like, tape this. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to get crushed. Like, I'll try and make some sort of sign to the crowd. <laughs> you know, you'll know I'm doing this. Because it, again, I don't know if this was just something that relaxed me at the time. But, um, you know, that match even specifically, you know, you think you're ready for those moments, but you don't know it until you're actually out there competing and what it's like to really choke. Like I've choked in matches in high school, college, you know, you blow it and you're like, oh, you know, I got nervous. I was out there competing and I had trouble breathing. You know, just the feeling of tension was so overwhelming when you thought of, oh my gosh, I'm going to beat the number one player in the world. Um, I, your brain starts going a million miles an hour. Like basic functions were sort of out the window, which is why now I love watching tennis because I actually remember that feeling so, I remember it vividly today, what it's like to be on that court during the match and let alone the feeling afterwards when you actually win. Well, listen, why don't you tell us about that tournament? Um, <laughs> it was know, an I interesting mean, time. Yeah. So I, um, I was actually, the week before I was in Boca um, and I'd become good friends with Andy Roddick out there and we were... Um, 
you know, I lost first round or something and I was drinking uh, pretty, you know, pretty hard after a loss. And I got a phone call, I think it was on Wednesday that week. And they're like, listen, you know, you're going to be the last spot in qualities. Can you get here by Friday? I was like, great. You know, I'll go. I was, um, uh, flew out there late Thursday night, uh, show up Friday morning. I was like, listen, worst case scenario, I'm losing first round. It's, you know, a thousand bucks. I'll take this money and I'll just go spend it on vacation. Um, so, you know, one Aqualis played a guy, Olivier Rokas, who was, you know, 52 at the time, I think ranked and couldn't get in the main draw. Belgian, I, mean, I think. Belgian guy, you know, small guy, but incredible player. Uh, had some great years at Wimbledon, um, you know, and beat him, which was the best win of my life at that point. So this is great. So I'm into the main draw. I see Fernando Gonzalez, a guy who's, you know, top. Hold on. So you qualied, qualied. And, and then made a run to the quarters? And then I made a run to the quarters. So you basically won seven matches in I a row. I mean, row. it was match after match. And, and it, listen, they were all matches. I consider that a grand slam, man. It, it, was, <laughs> it, it was a long, and, and, and listen, there were all these Spanish guys. Gonzalez was brutal. You played, you beat Fernando Gonzalez. Fernando Gonzalez in the first round. Then it was Ferrero. Then it was Tommy Robredo after that. I mean, it was, and those guys are physical, super physical players. Um, and so... Uh, that's incredible. It I mean, was, I don't know you, but I'm proud of you. Just yeah, to, thanks. You know, yeah, that's unbelievable. It was a it was a it was a great week, um, but it was um, yeah. I just I sort of didn't see it coming. I had a lot of great support from some of the American players who were giving me tips on how to beat the guys. But um, you got you got close with Roddick. I did. Does that relationship continue? It doesn't. Um, we you know as I sort of shifted out of tennis, he continued on for many years. I mean, it's sort of you know things sort of find their own way. So, yeah, but no. but um, when you guys were on tour, yeah, um, he was a friend and confidant. He was a very helpful resource for me for a variety of things. Whether it was training, you know, he invited me to come down and train at his place, so I got to see that level of play, that level of serve. Frankly, um, that was really helpful. He went out and played doubles with me a couple times at tournaments. We beat the Bryans. Um, I mean. It, just being in that environment was great, um, and being around, you know, him learning, learning from him on the court was great. He gave me tips against guys I was playing, right? So he's like, "Hey, you're playing Gonzalez. Think about this. You know, when this happens, you know, be prepared for that." I mean, that's massively valuable. So he, on top of the fact, I mean, I started a foundation back when I was out there on tour. He was like, "I'll fly in for a couple of years and like help you get this thing started." I mean, he just, I am in, you know, massively indebted to him for for the role he played at that stage because it was. You know, there was still that fraud complex that I had where I'm like, hey, I'm stepping out now onto the ATP tour, seeing these guys that I've played against on TV, I feel like I'm not ready for this. And he's like, listen, here's what you got to do, here's how you got to do it, and help sort of steer my mind in the right direction. Did he get a raw deal with the slowing of the courts? Would he have... uh been more prolific? I mean, I think so. Yeah. It's hard not to think so. Um, you know, Wimbledon continued to get slower. Uh, the US Open has continued to put more and more sand in the courts to make it slower. Um, yeah, I mean, you, yeah. when you got to serve like that in a forehand like that, you know, long points for guys like Nadal and, you know, Federer, who it, it yeah, it was never going to be in his favor. I hope you can put that relationship back together. I feel yeah. like... Uh, feels no, for like sure. If we saw each other, for sure. I think it's just, you know, life goes in a lot of... Sure. It's sort of like changing jobs. It's like I, my job just changed. <laughs> when does... So, I mean, so... Who did you, who did you lose to then? Uh, so, I quarters? lost to a guy, Vince Spadia. Oh, you, really? Yeah. Um, I had like, beaten him earlier in the year in Adelaide. and uh, Vince Spadia. It was another lesson for me in... Um, it was the first time when I walked on the court, I was like, I've beaten this guy before. Like, I can do this again. And that is a mentality of death for me. And he just chopped me up. And he, had, he, he, was, he was a tough player for me to play. I lost him a bunch of times. Vince? Yeah. He just had my number, which is irritating. But yeah. That is irritating. It, is, it was super irritating. But <laughs> beat him the first time, and then it all just kind of crashed and went downhill. Shout out to Vince Spadia. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's such an odd guy. I mean, he's, 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 a, such, he's a, such a character to begin with. So then you're going out there, and he just would, yeah, he just beat me up every Character time. that doesn't miss a lot. Does not miss a lot. No, that spent yeah, and, his and whole, I, and by I, the way, that spent his whole life yes. painting lines. Uh-huh. Um, Vince Spadia. Yeah, he's a, he's a character, but I, I, I didn't have the weapons to beat him. Um, for those of you that want to have your own conversation with Vince Spadia, he's teaching tennis at Poinsettia Park. Is he really? Uh, in uh, West Hollywood, California from time to time. Uh, 
Take a look at him on the internet and, and you can say hello. <laughs> you beat about nine guys that were world number one. At least, yeah. At least. Yeah. You know, starting with Becker. Of course. And finishing with Federer. He's, That's pretty amazing. He's a pretty good player. Um, your best moment on tour, that Indian Wells tournament? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that was the most, uh, I mean, listen, I, beating Ferrero, beating those guys, um, that was the top of the mountain for me. That was the thing that I actually never thought I could do. And when did your shoulders start going down the tubes? It probably, I would say, you know, maybe six months, seven months after that, I started to run into some problems. And it, it showed up in different ways. I was doing a ton of cortisone shots, um, whatever I could do to extend it. But it was, it was an interesting injury in that it was sort of like a dead arm. So I'd go out there and I could crush the serve. I was, you know, I was playing great. And then as the match went on, I continued to try and serve hard and just no, there was nothing there. And so my, you know, you sort of thought maybe I was getting nervous, but I was like, I'm swinging as hard as I can and it's a hundred miles an hour is coming out and I don't know how to fix it. And that's when you end up off the tour. Yeah. Shoulder surgery. Um, but I'm saying you can't, you can't serve a hundred and be on the tour. A hundred percent. I mean, you're just getting crushed. Chucky Adams uh, said that, you know, when he had his shoulder problems back in the day, that that took him off the tour, that you go from, you know, you think you could be, you know, you could be in the top 20 with a 120 mile an hour serve. And once you start losing the velocity, 10 miles an hour, that's the difference between I mean, you're being done. in the top 100. You're done. You're done. Yeah. So there's no other way around it. And yes, the difference between 250 and you know, 50 is not that much. So if you're losing five, six miles an hour on your serve, if there's any sort of hitch that's happening on your forehand or backhand, I mean, you're, you're going to lose that match. So it, it, for me, it was not only that the shoulder took me off, but I mean, I, I you know, just losing too many matches. Because of the velocity, would you say it's serve velocity? I, shoulder, I think there's a couple things. One, shoulder was a problem. Two, you know, I was, became the hunted, right? And so all of a sudden now you achieve these rankings and you're not hiding anymore. People, so started, people started getting up They figured you. out my backhand, you know, the, the, the difference about my game was my backhand was my best shot, right? And typically everybody, you focus your, your entire strategy on the backhand side of the court. Watch the majority of matches. It's backhand to backhand and then someone's trying to run around a forehand. I loved when people played in my backhand. And I could hit, you know, a lot of winners on that side. And slowly people figured that out, Started right? And so where is it start the forehand a little bit? Where are my tendencies on my serve? Turns out I didn't really move my serve around that much. I actually didn't change the pace up that much. So these things, you know, you start to get a scouting report on you. And, it, it starts uh, to come out. And it's hard, right? So now all of a sudden you got, I mean, that's what's so impressive about these guys that stay for so long is, you know, you, the weakness gets exposed and it's how well you're able to cover that. And that was, you know, that's tough. Do you do you remember your last pro tennis match? And did you know it was your last? It was going to be your last pro tennis. Match? So another interesting. So uh, it was against uh, Del Potro, where uh, U.S. Open. Uh, he was super young is, at the this time. Two thousand three. No, no, this was sorry. seven. I think two thousand seven. Sorry, two thousand seven. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm like, who is this young guy? Like, what a sweet first round I've got. This will be easy. Like, who do I move forward past? And he just, like, lit, I mean, just lit me up with just massive forehands. And I'm thinking, this guy is just playing out of his head. This is a joke. And maybe this is the sign, right? Like, if I can't beat this loser, you got to get out of the game. Like, this is the <laughs> sign that, like, go have surgery. You're done. Um, so you, you know, lost, you're, you're just going down. So you lost to a, 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 someone that would become world number one. Two years one. later, he won. Maybe it wasn't so bad. And that's who, uh, but listen, you don't know at the time. I mean, right. you're out there playing. I lost to Sanga in a challenger. And it's like, how do I lose to this young kid? He's, like, average and, like... You know, yes, he's got a forehand, but he's playing, you know, I'm so convinced he's just playing the greatest match of his life. And, oh, this always happens to me that these guys play so well against me. And it's like, or there could just be these amazing players that are coming up. But you don't know that at the time. You know, you don't know that Andy Murray who's playing a couple of courts down or Tipsarevich who's like two to, you know, courts down over here. It's like they're these great players in the making. But for me, it's like, how, how am I not beating these guys? Well, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? You think that. You just don't know. You're losing to some bum in the Pullman's <laughs> U.S. Open. I, and you just don't know, and it changes so fast. I mean, even at the Open here, it's like, you know, somebody makes it three or four rounds, and all of a sudden, it's like, how did you not hear a Berrettini? And is this guy and that? And you're like, you know, I'm sure two years ago, people were annoyed losing to him in the, you know, in the challenger circuit. So it's, it's just how, it's interesting how that evolves, and I, I didn't have the right perspective there.
um, surgeries, retire, surgeries, um, retirement, the uh, traumatized, or did you kind of keep it moving and go right into finance right out of the box? So I worked with a sports psychologist when I was on tour. It was actually somebody who's worked with Lendl and Kerber and Halep. Jim Blair. Like, no, Alexis Castori. Oh, we don't know she's that. A, you should you should talk to her. She's pretty amazing. Um, she's worked with a ton of players. Alexis Castori. You got it. Um, where is she based out? She's of? in Florida. And uh, she's a sports psychologist that, that specializes in tennis players? I mean, she does golfers as well. Okay. She does, there's a few other sports, but she has definitely hit, I mean, her roster of, of clients are, are pretty strong. But um, I worked with her pretty closely on the what it would be like to leave tennis. Because listen, you're leaving your ego behind. You're leaving your sense of identity behind you. Um, I was, didn't, you sort of don't know who you are outside of it. And um, that can be, and on top of the fact, you're never going to experience adrenaline like that again. And that's just real. It's the truth. You know, I'm 10, 11 years removed. I've never experienced the adrenaline that I have on a center court of a Grand Slam. You never. And you never, there's no board meeting. There's no nothing that's going to take you there. So how do you prepare yourself for it? Because there's a lot of players that go bankrupt, that get into drugs, that, you know, or gain a bunch of weight. There's just a million different things you can go because you're, you're not... You're not thoughtfully closing that chapter of your life, and you have to experience it almost like a death. And it's usually a mourning period, and it sucks, and it's hard to watch, and it's hard when you have dreams thinking about it. But unless you're very present in understanding that transition, I think a lot of people really struggle. And so I did that for probably six to nine months while I was recovering from surgery. And then for me, it was a very thoughtful, I'm closing that chapter. I want to go crush it at something else. Let's go find out what I can be great at. You went to finance. And I go to finance. And that was a long and windy road. <laughs> um, obviously, there's been, you know, the, the, you coming out has been, uh, was publicized and is part of the story. Where does that land in the story? You know, it probably lands midway through the end of my career. So I was dating a girl for about a couple years, um, was trying to get married. She ended up leaving me. Um, and it was sort of about that time, maybe, I don't know, maybe six, 10 months later, struggling with my shoulder. Um, I also was actually struggling a lot being on tour right around that Indian Wells time. I also did this people magazine, like top 25 bachelors thing. And, uh, where you were, uh, you were, uh, it was nuts. So they approached me to do this article. I did not read those magazines. I didn't realize how big of a deal it would be. Um, it sort of puts you in a different level of notoriety, right? So as you're out there competing, some more people are coming to watch you. Uh, for our listeners, uh, what he's talking about is he was named one of the 25 most eligible bachelors in People magazine. Um, it, and yeah. it was like a big thing. It, it was a thing, right? So, and it just continued to grow your profile and... For me, I'm very much an introvert. And so now all of a sudden this attention's coming and it's not authentic attention, it's just sort of fan attention. And you know, I I mean, I had a stalker in Atlanta. Oh, come on. I mean, it's, listen, some crazy people come out of the woodworks all of a sudden. And uh, you know, that gets unnerving. You know? yeah. They came up to your house and stuff? Oh, yes. You had to call the police? Oh, yes. And get so he was in jail, yeah, he was showing up at tournaments. Come on. Oh, yeah. Um, he or she? He. Was coming to the tournaments. Mm -hmm. That's not a good look. And it's not a great look. So I had to tell security when I was going to, to tournaments that there's this guy that's coming. So, but listen, as a now, what, young... dude wanted to like, talk to you? Yeah, just constantly wanted to be around. And then he was showing up at my house and leaving things on the front doors, leaving things in front of my parents' house. Oh, come on. I mean, he's just finding man. all different pieces. Um, at the time, it, it's a really long story. Yeah, no, no, don't. It's we, a really long story. You gotta story. save that for our yeah. stalker episode. It's just, anyway, it was a thing. Um, but listen, it was, it was a hard period. And so I'm figuring out things about my sexuality that I didn't like, didn't want, wanted to sort of push out to the side. Um, that's happening in the background. And it, it, it was a million different distractions with tennis while my shoulder is sort of falling apart. And it was a tough time. So, and it's really hard in those days to want to explore any piece of your sexuality because you're going to, listen, that's not a great path. to didn't feel like a great path to go down. And so much of my life was so... Um, I just knew exactly where I wanted to be, who I wanted to be, and I had and I had it designed, and I worked hard enough to earn it. So now that I'm finally at the finish line and I'm ready to get married and have this great life, it's like, no, nope, sorry, 
Here's, yeah. a, here, here's a little, here's a little curveball. I'm like, it's like, oh, so it, was, it um, I went through a long shoot. It was five or six years of trying to, frankly, come to terms with it. And when you when you announced it, what was the impetus for? What was the impetus for it? Yeah. So leaving tennis, I left a lot of it behind. I left a lot of relationships behind because, frankly, I didn't know how they would react to it. Right. So it was just easier to start a new life and be like, forget tennis, I'm done. And so even coming back on the board, I was like, gosh, what am I going to say? What am I not going to say? Not just you're talking about players, friends, Twitter players, friends, tournament directors, sure. coaches. It is a, you know, listen, there are a ton of homophobic remarks happening all the time. It's, it's not a locker the, room. It's a locker room talk, which is, which is fine. Um, a lot of I, testosterone in those locker rooms. I mean, rooms. listen, it's massively competitive and... Um, Girls everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't ready for how they would potentially react to it, so um, I... Left. Sort of just stayed quiet, stayed quiet about it. You know, I got married back at home. But again, it was just everything was very sort of my top, you know, 50, 100 friends knew about it. And that was it. And I sort of left it there. Um, it really wasn't until I had kids that I felt this sense of, again, kind of fraud mentality of like, this is like, I'm so hiding who I am and what I am uh, for the fear of these judgment of these people. And um I just felt embarrassed as a father to do it. And at some point, it's like, you just got to gotta man up and, and do it. Yeah, so, um, it's 2019. Let's go. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, and I did this probably a couple of years ago um, with guy John Wartheim, uh, who I knew, who I trusted. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of did it. And You, you announced it with, with L. John? Yeah. Okay. And so, it was a written? It was a, we did a podcast. Oh, you did? Yeah, because I wanted people to also see the context of it, right? And, like, what the struggle was, how I felt, who I was. I... Sometimes when it's just on paper, it's like you get to the headline, like, player's gay, and it's like, scroll down, scroll down, who cares? And I kind of want to humanize it a little bit more, and some people who knew me growing up, knew the kind of person I was, um, see what my life is like with kids, because listen, it's not... I apologize, we, we probably could have listened to that. Um, we didn't, it's just fine. so you know. It's uh, fine, but... No, no, shout out it, to El John, he's our, yeah, he's our colleague. It, uh, listen, my, my kids, we go out, we... You know, some people say some pretty nasty things to me. When I, after the, the Wartime podcast, I mean, I got probably thousands of emails just ripping me apart, telling me they're coming to my house, they're going to take my kids, they're going to kill us in the night, they're going to they're kill us, but take our kids. No, no, you're saying that people reached out on Twitter, on social media. Somehow my email got somewhere in the, in the email universe. Come and on. so it was just, it just was getting flooded for probably six or seven days. With hatred. Oh, I mean, I'd say maybe 1% was positive. People are fucked up. So, you know, that's happening behind the scenes, which listen, at the time my husband didn't even know me from my tennis days. So he's like, what, what, what did you do? Like, <laughs> what is this? Um, combined with the fact that, you know, where we were living, you know, we'd go out and, I mean, people say some pretty nasty stuff to us. You know, when they find out, like, first it's, oh, you're giving your wives a day off, like it's so nice. And then they're sort of watching and then they'll come up to you and be like, I think it's disgusting what you're doing. And it's like, thank you for the feedback that I didn't ask for. Um, so it's a, it is a tough road. I mean, it really is. But um, that happens to you, of course. Yeah, yeah it happened the last couple of months. Um, but um, listen, I love my boys. I love my husband. And I'm not. One of the great things about tennis is you learn adversity. You learn how to deal with people that don't like you. Um, you learn how to, you know, compete and be do the best you can. So I, you know, let's go. Are you grateful to Roger for um, saying what he said? Yeah, I mean, Roger, Andy Murray said a lot of really nice things. Kevin Anderson has actually come to some of the events, which has been really, you know, has been great. Um, I think events, foundation events, is that what you? No, there's about? been Sorry. a guy, Nick McCarville, who's a commentator around. Yeah, He's yeah. done some of these events at Grand Slams. So at the Australian Open, he had an LGBT, you know, event down there. Got it. Kevin was like, "Listen, I think this is great. We got to be more supportive of this." So anytime you get the top players being supportive, you know, I think is great. Do I think the locker room would be the easiest place still right now? Probably not. But to me, the more and more this gets visible, the more there are stories like mine that are out there that I don't think anybody's out there intentionally saying you know, doing mean things, right? It's just, that's just sort of the culture. And so how can we sort of change that, change the way it's, you know, people are, you know, thinking and talking. So to make it easier, because I, I would hate for somebody to have the level of anxiety that I had out there. Completely. Well, it's funny, we live in New York and LA and, and, and I think, um, I think that maybe we are uh, insulated and we don't really, you know, necessarily see or hear about those kind of things like, 
we're around <laughs> gay people all the time. Sure. I mean, it's just it's just very sobering to hear that you got thousands of hatred <laughs> emails yeah. and, and people say the kind of things like that. I um, just you know it's it's real. It's part of the country. I'm fine. I'm not going to let them change my attitude or mentality on it. It does, though, have to, I have to be smart about it in terms of where we're going to live, right? So we move now closer into D.C. Our neighbors are amazing. It's a great place for us to live. But the true reality is there's probably only four or five cities that we can live in in the U.S., which is too bad, right? We love to live on the water. We like the country. But it's like it just, those places sometimes don't, don't work as well for us. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're going to be living in the cities, and it's good. Let's move into our fourth set. We call this the 10 ball scramble. It's not a deep dive. I just okay. say it and you say what comes into your mind. Yeah. Favorite tournament? Indian Wells. Favorite city? Uh, Auckland, New Zealand. Best player party? <laughs> uh, US Open. Really? I don't know. You, I don't, don't, yeah, know. you don't go to a lot of those. You events. never went to? No, I mean, come on. You got you to gotta play. You didn't, do a lot of, you didn't do a lot of going out. No, no, I was I wasn't good enough to go out and stay up all night and None of that. <laughs> I, had to, I was there to grind play. I had to play um, Best friend on tour uh, Andy Roddick most underrated player of your generation Wow, good question um, Yeah, I mean, you know, you want to find like the 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 needle in the haystack. There was a guy, Vladimir Volchkov. I don't know if you remember him. He got to the semis at Wimbledon one year. Volchkov. He was, God, one heck of a junior player. It was, was him so and good. Hewitt and Federer back in those days when I was growing up in the juniors. But that guy, I don't know how he, he was, he was one heck of a player. Vladimir Volchkov. Yes, look that one up. Wow. Um, On-court coaching. I'm against it. Shot clock. Love it. Your toughest opponent. Um, Agassi. Favorite forehand? Fernando Gonzalez. Backhand? Stan Wawrinka. Volleys? Um, There's so few people going up to the net. What do you say, Federer on that? I mean, I loved Edberg's volleys. Oh, well, if you're going to go back in time. Go back sure. Oh, want. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll take Edberg. It's a good one. I mean, you can say Becker, but yeah, Edberg's pretty. Pat Cash, too, who comes up to nah. I'll take Edberg. Um, serve. Uh, I would have taken Becker's serve. You like Becker? You like the, you the big. The there big was rock. something deceptive of it too, the, right? The, the form was great. You didn't know whether he was going left or right. I, 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 yeah, I'll take Becker. Margaret Court. Not a fan. <laughs> Listen, she, she, she's, you know, she's crushing my family. She's making fun of my family and tells me we're all going to hell. What I mean, how great is it to watch the a Grand Slam and see her name on it? They should change why I'm a big, that. That's why I'm a big Serena Williams fan. They should change that, huh? You know, if you're going to put somebody up as a big court on the, in one of the grandest stages, um, it's they shouldn't massive, be spewing It hatred. is massively insulting. Things that she has said, invoking like the name of Hitler at times when she just talks about the gay community. It's disgusting. Um, it's beyond the point of being offensive. So I. Uh, listen, I hope they'll make a change. Craig Tiley, the tournament director down there, I've talked to him about it. He's like, listen, I, I, my hands are tied. It's a government-run facility, so it would have to be done at the Congress, you know, congressional level. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't know when that appetite will come, but it is massively insulting to, to run into that. Let's move into our fifth set. This is what we call the king of the court. If you could... Uh, be the king of tennis and make a big sweeping change or any change really for that matter with one you know swing of the racket what would it be i would love to see the rankings be over a two-year period um very similar to what they do with golf one of the hardest things that i think is underrated out there is you have to consistently be playing year after year and i think there's a general sort of lack of respect for a player's body and to me if we had a two-year ranking you know cycle it just the pressure to defend points. And listen, pressure to defend points matters, but it's not even so much the pressure. It's like you've got to get out there and play. And there were times that I wish that I treated my career differently because you never knew what your top, I think, what do they give you, your top 12 tournaments, top 18 tournaments, like count towards your ranking. You know, you're just constantly out there competing. And I think the health of the players should be put a little bit more up front because, you know, our season's going from what? 
you leave Christmas Day to go to Australia, you come back and, you know, the end of November, I mean, thanks for the month off. The pressure of the ranking dropping is keeping players playing hurt and getting hurt. Correct. You would think about your schedule completely differently if uh, you actually had that ability to say, hey, this, I need to take this one off and I'm going to, you know, for, you know, what is it, periodization. I mean, you just think through one of your right times to play and compete and focus there. Versus, I mean, you know, I was going, you go to Asia for eight weeks, you go to Europe for eight weeks, and I'm not sure that was, you know, I think some of those things led to my shoulder falling apart, and frankly, sometimes the quality of tennis not being what it should. What is your opinion of uh, the USTA's development program? So when I came back on the board, that was one of the biggest things I wanted to change, right? The... Um, I didn't like not like the player development culture as I went. So now since we have built Lake Nona, the big initiative that I've been trying to push is this sort of Team USA aspect and how they can all get together, work together, and support each other and just think about it differently. It, it, it felt very political growing up. Wild cards were very political. So I wanted to recreate that environment that I felt like I had in Atlanta where it was you go home and Ginepri is there, you know, Bobby's there, Donald's down the road. Um, it... If we, could, if we could recreate that, to me, we're going to bring American tennis back up. And so, number one, let's get them down at a great facility where they can train. And then number two, how do you set the culture so that people can actually genuinely be supportive of each other so that when they see Tiafo make it to the quarters of the Australian, it's like, hey, I can do that too. And how can they reinvest back, you know, in, in the game? So I'm, I'm pretty encouraged by it. I think, uh, I think this is, you know, I think we're on our way. Hey, man, this has been a pleasure. Appreciate this candid and uh, extremely interesting uh, chat. Enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. We'll we'll look for you on TV in the president's <laughs> box in your blue blazer and uh, a glass of wine, looking the part, acting the part. Brian Bahaley, you are released. Thank you. Huge thank you to Brian Bahaley. Huge thank you to the courts at Anzo Borrego, a cool new tennis getaway in the California desert. See all about it at thecourts.net and tell them that we sent you. We'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. See what they're doing at sergiotacchini.com. And now if you've been thinking about becoming a patron of the show, now is the time. Head on over to patreon.com slash underreviewtennis to read all about it. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash underreviewtennis really appreciate it if you like what you're hearing please subscribe rate and review us we can be found wherever you get your podcasts we also love hearing from you so if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from please let us know our email is info at underreviewtennis.com at ur with cs is our twitter handle underreviewtennis is our instagram and facebook and to catch some clips from some of our interviews check out our youtube page Scott Tuff recorded sound and edited the show. Additional editing by Max Loeb. Our music is by Brian Senti. And Jason Binnick mixes the show. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.